Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us this evening for what promises to be a lively discussion on money, master or servant. St. Paul's Institute is devoted to such discussions because we believe we, they help audiences forward their own thinking to make up their own minds on how they choose to behave and how they can take action to change what needs to be changed. My name is Barbara Ridpath. I'm the director of St. Paul's Institute. We have a proud history of drawing attention to issues that are crucial to human, social, material, and spiritual well-being. Given our location in the city, much of our work has revolved around money, markets, values, and the pursuit of the common good. On such topics, we have been delighted to host Michael Sandel under the dome of the cathedral and an entire series on the city and the common good. Now, I have to admit, I wasn't here when Michael Sandel spoke, but I'm a big fan of him and his books. He writes in What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, that part of the appeal of markets is that they don't pass judgment on the preferences they satisfy. I would add that in a political world where people are terrified of making value judgments, it is not just the mark it's not just the people in the market that like this aspect of money and markets. Now for tonight's event, if you substitute money for markets and know that our first speaker has no such fear of passing judgment, um, as you will if you've read his book, An Idol Unmask, A Faith Perspective on Money, um, you will get to hear Bishop Peter Selby. He is a long-standing friend and advisor to St. Paul's Institute. He will be followed by Dominic Johnson, chair of the New City Initiative and CEO of Somerset Capital Management, LLP, to speak about how capitalism can be made good again. And after Dominic, Ben Dyson, founder of Positive Money, will give some constructive suggestions about what we all might do differently to change our thinking about and dependence upon money and debt. Uh, for those of you who are FT readers, you should know that Martin Wolf, the FT columnist, is a big supporter of Ben's work. I will be moderating the discussion, and I will give each speaker the podium for 10 to 15 minutes for his thoughts, after which I will take the chair's prerogative to start the discussion, and then ask you, please, to give us, uh, to make sure that we've covered everything by asking any questions you have. So I will introduce each speaker in turn, starting with Bishop Peter. Peter Selby is to be congratulated for celebrating 30 years as a bishop this year. He was Bishop of Worcester from 1997 until 2007, and in 2001 was also appointed as Bishop to Her Majesty's Prisons, a post from which he also retired in 2007. Dr. Selby's interest in prisons is long-standing, as he himself is the son of refugees and served for a time as the chair of the Asylum Committee of the Refugee Council. He has served in posts involving adult education and policy development, as well as pastoral and consultancy work in South London and in the Northeast. His first position as a bishop was in Southwest London, and he undertook research into international and personal debt as the William Leach Professorial Fellow in Durham from 1992 to 1997. During his time as diocesan bishop, he was elected a church commissioner and appointed a member of its assets committee. He was president of the National Council for Independent Monitoring Boards from 2008 to 2013. He also recently published the book you have just heard of and is also the author of Grace and Mortgage, 
The Language of Faith and the Debt of the World, which I believe was republished after the financial crisis, was it not? Um, and he was a part of the interim directing team of the St. Paul's Institute from 2012 to 2014. He continues to be our special advisor, and I owe him a personal debt of gratitude for his help and counsel. Peter. Thank you. It's a great um, pleasure to me to, to, to talk at this gathering. Um, <clears throat> the book, uh, which has been mentioned um, tediously, often I expect uh, you'll think uh, this isn't just about plugging a book, um, but, it, but I owe the insight, many of the insights in the book to the commission from uh, St. Paul's Institute to write articles and I've pulled them together into that into that book um, and expanded the thinking in them. Now um, uh, if I may first uh, either brag or confess um, I'm just back from Tokyo um, and the reason I went to Tokyo was because there was a there was a session of the International Bar Association, which is about lawyers rather than drinking, um, and I was I was asked to address the section that was dealing with corruption. Um, I resisted this. I said I didn't really know anything about corruption. I was happy to report, um, but I was nonetheless um, asked to come, and the reason I was asked to come was because there was to be a debate. And the debate was between those who thought that the people primarily to blame for corrupt bribery and corruption were the people who gave the bribes. And on the other side of the argument, the people who thought that the primarily, sought, the primarily blameworthy people were the people who took the bribes. Um, and I was asked to sit in the middle um, as a kind of active abstaining person in the, in the vote. And it's a source of some pride to me that um, when, the, when they took a straw poll at the start of the evening, uh, nobody wanted to abstain. Everybody was quite clear who was to blame. By the end, um, I'd got quite a few followers, and uh, so I felt really good about that. My point in speaking to them was that it was pointless to discuss who was to blame for bribery and corruption when what the truth of the matter is that we live in a world which actually supports corruption, is, <coughs> is fundamentally a, a world in which money has become a corrupting influence. Now, in the later uh, speak, speeches you're going to hear, um, you will uh, hear people talking who know what they're talking about, which is different from me. Um, and you will hear a very considerable and powerful debate about what's happened to money. And uh, I look forward to that debate because it's a debate uh, that, that is quite technical but is also very important because what's happened to money is the source of the particular disease about money that I want to talk about. 
Because the only thing that's original in an idol unmasked is that it actually makes the claim that money has become a deity, that it has acquired capacities to engender both greed and fear in people and to take over the running of our lives in a very remarkable way and that that is the result of the huge expansion both in the amount of money there is in the system and its volatility, the speed of circulation and both those things come, as you're going to hear, I'm sure, later, those, those things come from the fact that money is created for profit by private institutions who have an interest in creating more money and in that money being powerful. And you will probably be thinking, but it says in the Bible that the love of money is the root of every kind of evil, and that that might suggest to you that money itself is neutral. Money is an instrument that we can use as we choose and towards which we can have attitudes, positive and negative, excessive or not excessive, as we choose. I think that's a very, very dangerous argument. For the fact of the matter is, I want to suggest, that money has become a very dominant force in our lives. One of the questions I often ask people is whether they read a Sunday newspaper which has a money section. And if, as most uh, do, they say yes, I ask people to consider how big the money section is of their Sunday newspaper. And how big it was 20 years ago, if it even had a money section then. And my contention is that in the number of trees that get destroyed every week to produce a money section for your Sunday paper, we have the evidence that money is becoming an increasingly dominant force in our society. And that it bears many of the marks of the ancient divinities in producing a realm of chaos and arbitrariness, not a realm of goodness and justice. And that that's what's happened to money and that's why it is such a dangerous phenomenon. A divinity, not an instrument. So when in the title of this evening's session you, you, ask, you are asked to consider the question is money master or servant? What I want to say is that it's a very special kind of master that money has become. It's the kind of mastery that divinities assert, exert over humankind. And it's a kind of divinity that has the capacity to require us to appease it, to get more of it, to ensure ourselves against its most devastating consequences and to make sure, therefore, that it doesn't control us, but it does. Because we have to take steps to deal with money, otherwise it will deal with us. And I want to suggest that anybody honestly looking at their life and themselves will see 
that they have to give more attention to money than they ever used to. And the reason they have to give more attention to money than they used to is quite simply that money has power, a kind of spiritual power, a kind of capacity to usurp the functions that other things uh, previously exercised. Um, Barbara, mentioned, um, Barbara mentioned Michael Sandel's uh, visit to us here. Uh, one of the things that Michael Sandel said, and it accords with something that I cover in, in the book, is that the inreach of markets, and that means money, because money is what is a decisive force in markets, the inreach of markets into every aspect of our lives is hollowing out, this is his expression, hollowing out our moral discourse. It is allowing money to substitute itself as the decisive factor in all sorts of situations. Uh, it was mentioned that I spent five years in, in Durham uh, on the faculty there. One of the things that shocked me most was that when people were planning changes to the syllabus, one of the key deciding factors was which, which choices would be more expensive and which would more, be more likely to expose the faculty to being sued for money by disgruntled students. I want to suggest that's quite a new development. I don't think it really occurred to me when I was a student that you could question the grade that you'd received from your tutor. But certainly we're now in a situation where students are customers. And a customer is a person whose weight is determined by the amount of money they bring to the table. So if you structure higher education, to take just that example, on the basis that students bring money with them, either their own or the taxpayers, you will make them into something they were not before. They are not learners and pupils, they're customers. And you may have noticed that when you take a train or a bus, uh, you're no longer a passenger, but a customer. And a friend of mine uh, rather wittily commented that the reason why it's good for railway companies to treat you as a customer rather than as a passenger is because you remain a customer even if the train never arrives. Um, and, but the point I'm making is that when we become customers or taxpayers or license fee payers, what is treated as important about us is the money we bring to the table, not the taste we bring, not the criteria of moral judgment that we bring. Now, uh, I happen to think that uh, many of the things which you're going to hear about later would constitute good ways of reforming the monetary system. But I think it is of great significance and importance that as well as the technical changes that we need to make 
We also consider the religious change that money has been through and the religious change we need to make. We need to understand the religious power of money. Because if we don't understand that, we may find that we are we're coming up with all sorts of useful technical ideas, but that those ideas somehow fail to meet that change in our inner landscape, that change in our social ways of behaving that we previously thought uh, money was about. And what we need to understand is that money has drawn us into a way of thinking that is a way dominated by itself. Now one of the starting points that I have in, in the book is the issue of gambling. Um, and uh, uh, it's not because I started out with some puritanical objection to raffles. I don't have a problem about parishes having raffles. Uh, as a matter of fact, or, or raffling things at the parish fete. But what happened when, when gambling became a central activity of society, when the prizes escalated, when people wanting to restore churches or run Olympic Games needed to use the proceeds of gambling, what happened then was that the characteristic arbitrariness and chaoticness of money started to become dominant in our society. And that's a very serious matter. Because it tells the poor that the reason for their poverty is just that they happen to pick the wrong numbers. And that's a very serious thing to tell them because it's false. And as soon as you allow chaos, randomness, to be the determining factor in the way in which resources are allocated, as soon as you do that, you have given to money a dominance which, to which it is not entitled. On the piece of paper that you have that was, was given to you um, uh, about my talk, you will see that at the bottom is an alternative way of seeing the world, a Christian way of seeing the world, which requires that we address the power of money as an instrument of chaos. And one of the uh, sources of biblical text that I, I love to quote because on the whole people aren't so aware of it, is, is a psalm, Psalm 82 which uh, you'll see halfway down the piece of paper, and which is a, an account of God delivering judgment against the authors of the chaos of the world. And I venture to suggest to you that when it says, because of they wander about in darkness and they function randomly, the foundations of the earth were shaken, I want to suggest that's that's a pretty good description of 2008 in my book. And what the psalm makes perfectly clear is that giving priority to the needs of the vulnerable 
is the absolute requirement for prosperity. People tell you that it's only if we are prosperous that we can help the poor. And that leads to the dominance of money. And what I want to suggest to you is that the faith perspective on money is this, that it is only if you are just and if you prioritize the needs of the vulnerable that you will have any possibility of attaining prosperity. And that's the case I want to advance, that we have allowed this instrument to become an idol, an object of worship, an object of fear, an object of greed and appeasement. And until we address that, we shall be very unlikely to make the technical changes we need to make to restore money to its proper place as an instrument of trade and exchange. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. As a starter for 10, I think that could keep us going for quite a while. <laughs> Our next speaker is Dominic Johnson, who co-founded Somerset Capital Management, an emerging markets asset management firm, in 2007. He is also chairman of the New City Initiative, helping to promote and advocate a better culture in finance. He writes opinion pieces for the Financial Times as a regular broadcast personality who has appeared on Bloomberg News, CNN, Reuters, and CNBC. Dominic has a keen interest in public service and was a counselor for the Royal Borough of Chelsea and Kensington up until 2010. Since before the 2010 election, Dominic has been a deputy treasurer of the Conservative Party, chairing the Business and Entrepreneurs Forum, among other things. He founded the Kensington and Chelsea Credit Union and is now working to make credit provision a central component of the White City Project to eradicate youth poverty, both social and financial. Dominic read politics at Durham University, so you two have something in I'm going to sue you for my 2-1, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have my <laughs> and spent several years in Asia and North America, returning to the UK in 2001. He is the founder of the Step Up St. Charles Volunteering Project, and maintains a close relationship with Canine Partners, a charity that trains assistance dogs for people, especially ex-military, with disabilities. Dominic. Thanks. Down a bit. Is, is that, can you hear all right now? Yes. It's not too sort of resonant. Um, Peter, thank you so much for that. Uh, if only I'd spent 30 years giving such wonderful sermons as you no doubt have done, I would have your wonderful tone and timbre to your voice and rationality of argument and great meaning with everything you say. And I do respect the arguments that you've made, as I'm sure all of you in the audience do. They must have struck a chord with you. Um, I'm delighted to be invited to this fantastic venue, Barbara. Thank you so much for thinking of me and the New City Initiative. Um, and I hadn't met Bar Barbara before, but I had met her husband, Michael. Um, at Durham University some months ago when I went up to talk about how bankers should be allowed to receive bonuses, uh, an equally popular subject, same sort of thematic as this. And as you can imagine, they, the student audience weren't nearly as nice as you, and I, I had great quantities of insults hurled at me uh, and various names called, and, and I was booed repeatedly, and uh, I obviously lost the debate. I mean, not just on account of that. I think Michael debated particularly strongly. Um, but the irony struck me at the end when I was surrounded by students 
who I had seen them booing in the audience, clustering around me, saying, oh, Mr. Johnson, could we come and do work experience in your financial <laughs> fund? Because I, I, once I finished my economics degree, I'd quite like to go into investment management. And unfortunately, that level of unintended hypocrisy uh, is really what I encounter much of the time. I'm often the lone voice when I talk about money um, and capitalism. And I'm just surprised I'm, I'm here, uh, not because I was cheap. I must say, that very kind of introduction that you gave, I think if you have to say that you're a broadcast personality, there's always a slight worry, and then list the things you've been on. You can't be actually that much of a broadcast personality. But I don't think I'm here just because um, of the reduced cost of getting um, me here. Um, I, I'm, I'm just surprised that I, I have to continually make the arguments. And I'm surprised that uh, I feel rather like um, a, a modern doctor might feel if he was transported back in time and, and had to try and justify modern medicine versus the leech, or if we were talking about whether or not the earth was flat. And I'm constantly surprised when I see the TV over the weekend and I see Russell Brand, who apparently is going to run for mayor, which must be difficult since he said voting and eating glitter were as pointless as each other. It's going to be hard for him to try and garner enough votes to win an election. But I'm surprised to see he has 8 million followers uh, on his Twitter feed, people literally wolfing down his uh, complete mad claptrap about capitalism, about money. But it can't be that mad if it's striking a chord in our hearts, so I'm puzzled about this. So this evening I'm going to briefly touch on what I think the benefits of capitalism are, and capitalism and money read the same concept. Money itself is simply a, a store of value or, or a unit of exchange, and I know um, that Ben's going to talk in when he speaks about the book he's written that talks about how money supply is, is linked to everything. But I'm not talking about the concept of money, the theoretical concept. I'm talking about what it does, what it, what it means, how it flows around us and amongst us. And I think that's really the debate tonight, you know, the concept of purchase and consumption. I'm going to talk about the benefits of, of capitalism in my mind. And I'm going to try and explain really why we fear it, why we still come to these debates, why you've given up the early part of your evening. I know that there's a free drink, but you, know, you can't be that desperate to, to, to spend two hours debating this subject. And then I want to talk about what that fear has led us to do, why it's so dangerous that we meet in hallowed ground such as this to discuss these issues and don't really formulate proper, in my opinion, rational views. And hopefully at the end I'll, I'll come to some solutions. It may not be the ones that you wish, but... We can breathe again. I'm going to take you by the hand and lead you up that gentle slope to the shining city on the hill where capitalism and money actually isn't such a bad lagoon to swim in with or without your swimming trunks, as Warren Buffett said. So for me, the benefits of capitalism are numerous. We haven't ended poverty in this world, but we've substantially reduced it. In my lifetime, I'm 40, I look older, I, I recently came back from a trip and the passport man wouldn't let me in because he said my photograph needed to be updated. It was taken six months ago. I, 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 I found in, in my lifetime the benefits of capitalism are enormous. We've reduced poverty by probably 80% globally since I was born in 1974. All the great things in our lives, all the technological advancements, the material comforts, the very fact that we can sit comfortable and warm in this room, really are as a direct result of effective capitalism. The allocation of capital to where it will get the best possible return. The religious buildings that we stand in, the arts and the culture that we adore, everything about our lives, really the best bits come from capitalism, come from money, come from what money can do when it's appropriately and properly applied. And in my mind, capitalism also guarantees my freedom. Whilst I liked reading both the books, 
And I might add, I had to buy Peter's, Ben sent me his for free, so the first lesson in capitalism is make sure you sell your work rather than give it away. Peter's no fool. The point about, about, about capital uh, is, is, is it, it has to flow um, directly to, to, to where it will generate the best possible return, not where you want it to go. And if you are free with money, if we have free markets, and ultimately you as a person, us in this room, are free, and we have these freedoms. And it's not surprising that those countries where capital is most restricted, people's lives are most enslaved. So for me, capitalism truly has delivered real, actual benefits. And if you think, what is the purpose of uh, society? Surely it must be to enable us to live longer, healthier, and ultimately happier lives. I'll come on to that third section in a moment. But none of you can possibly doubt in this room that capitalism and the flow of money and the invention and the incentive structures and the, the efficiencies and the customer concepts that capitalism drives has enabled us to stand tall as a human race in such an incredibly short period of time. And I love capitalism. But yet we fear it. Because as I said, money finds its own level like water. We fear the fact that it, is, um, it has no, no morality. It doesn't direct itself where it's needed, and this is forced to. We hate change. Of all the things in the world, spiders, heights, speaking in public, the things we hate the most is change. People still use old-fashioned telephones. My grandmother refuses to update her video recorder. These are small pieces. But think of the huge social change we've undergone in the last 30 years. The reforms in the UK in the early 80s. The reforms in America. I was intrigued to see on the news the Italians have marched en masse. The one thing they can do is strike in Italy. Do you know what they were striking about this weekend? They had a banner. They were striking against labour reforms. We can understand that. No one wants to be forced to have their labour changed. It's painful. We sitting here, not affected, probably think we understand that's important. The underneath piece is we are also marching against youth unemployment. Does no one in this room see the extraordinary dichotomy of the two concepts being on the same billboard at the same march. They're against labour reform, which encourages employment and could give jobs to the 50% of Italian youth who are unemployed. And yet they want to see more youth employment. So change for us is terrifying. We hate it. What's happened in this country over the last 10 or so years? Have you seen a rise of a political party? And we see this mirrored across the Western world that represents people who are terrified of change. And by this I'm talking of the UK Independence Party, or the National Front in, 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 in France, or the Golden Dawn in, in Greece, or all the far socialist parties in Greece, or the Tea Party in America, or, or whatever it may be. These are organisations that are terrified of change. They don't like change, and they have a huge constituency amongst many of us who hate change. And that could be change in, in how we do our business, in the same way that we're, they're marching against the reform of labour laws, or how we mine our coal, or how we get to work, or how we uh, uh, open our borders, or globalisation, or technology, or whatever it is. We don't like change. And capitalism forces change. And for those people post the change event, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. But for those people pre and in the process of being changed, it's incredibly painful. And so we resist it in every way we can. And the second thing we resist is volatility. Capitalism has cycles. There is a necessary astringency, a concept of bankruptcy, which we forgot about in the crisis in actual fact. Truly important to cleanse, like frost, like seasonal change, like whatever, like a forest fire in a Montana forest. They stopped, they stopped fires 
in Montana. They kept putting them out, as a result of which the undergrowth grew so big that when the fire came, it wiped out practically all the forest in Montana. It's taken 30 years to regrow. And that's exactly the same with our economies. We don't like volatility. We don't like the cycle. Everything we do now is to try and tame that cycle, to try and smooth it out. So what are the effects of these fears? The fact we don't like change and we don't like volatility, which is at the core of capitalism, which yet has given us this wonderful bouquet of life, wealth, materials, health, and longevity. We do everything we can to stop change and everything we can to smooth out volatility. We do this through either the creation of extra money because we don't want people to not have enough when the time comes, uh, to overtaxing, to crony capitalism. My contention is this, it's through our fear of capitalism, through our unwillingness to live alongside it, mm-hmm. our desperation to try and tame it, and democracy pushes us that way. Politicians must do something about whatever it is, and particularly the cycle. And parties arise, as I've said, to confront the concept of change or volatility that's so incredibly necessary. So everything is done to avoid capitalism. And the result of that is exactly what we saw in 2008. Huge imbalances. Because money didn't go to where it should have gone, where it could have generated the best possible return. It was given to people who needed it. Poor people who should be allowed to buy a house. Why should I be the only person allowed to buy a house of someone who works in a wealth management firm? Surely it is right and just that people who don't have as much money as me should also have the opportunity of home ownership. So what do we do? We lend to people who ultimately couldn't afford to repay the money they borrowed, thus creating an incredibly dangerous and powerful subprime mortgage forced upon us by politicians, by us, by ourselves, trying to yet again allocate money inappropriately. And the second piece, which comes from change in volatility, is, is, is the, the, the pushing of um, uh, money towards where it's least efficient in terms of crony capitalism. And my real bugbear as a uh, CEO of a, of a small boutique asset management firm is that the enormous organisations are artificially created by us, the governments, the, the, the body politic, the democracies, because we're so frightened of bankruptcies. They get so large, they become effectively a producer cartel that doesn't serve any of us. My own experiences with my bank are appalling because we are not actually treated as customers. We are powerless because money has not flowed in the appropriate fashion. They are no longer at the mercy of the market. They are simply at the mercy of a small number of governments who want to prop them up because they see that as the best way to reduce change volatility and just get to the next election. So the result is huge imbalances. The result is corruption. The result are cartels, crony capitalists. The result is to push people towards gambling because money doesn't flow properly. The result is effectively money becomes a deity because it's controlled, it's not flowing. A deity isn't water. It's something that you have to clutch onto because otherwise it'll be gone. Incredibly dangerous situation we've created because of our fear of something that's so powerful and good. The more we interfere, the worse it gets. And even now, we're trying to bypass the banks and bypass the rule of thought and law by promoting peer-to-peer lending. I'm a great capitalist, but does it not make you a bit perturbed that banks won't lend money to organisations and so we set up these websites where with no guarantees, with no um, regulation whatsoever, we, we can just pour money into a supposedly higher interest rate without understanding where it goes? So everything we're still doing in the face of the crisis is making the situation worse. And the final piece of this is regulation. And this is what I campaign against a lot. 
For me, it's about a plethora, a thousand flowers blooming of small businesses. That's how you get an effective capitalist system. That's how you get money moving. No organization too big to fail. Everyone trying to respond. Everyone trying to change. Everyone coping with volatility. But all regulation has done is made you feel safer tonight in your mind. That's nice. But it's destroyed the small businesses and yet again pushed more resources into the large producer cartels, making the system even less safe now, possibly, than it was in 2008. And all the other problems that we have with, cap with our perception of how modern capitalism is interpreted running through that. So a positive solution. This is what we want. The deep breath. We'll take a deep breath together. Because it's not actually that bad. I would suggest that we don't look upon money either as a master uh, or a servant. But we look upon money as something that flows around us. A partnership with capital. Where we understand its benefits and don't try and control it. We educate ourselves properly so we can cope with change. We manage our expectations so that we can deal with volatility. And from my point of view in the New City Initiative, I've been pushing a concept of partnership-owned specialist financial services businesses. It's no surprise to any of us that no partnership, as far as I'm aware, in the UK went bust as a result of the Great Crash in 2008. And the reason is they're better structured. You care about what your peer does. In my organisation, my partners, and this is one of the things that Thatcher unfortunately did away with, in my mind, mistakenly, we care about the activities of our peers. One of the things you read about again and again in the banks is no one knew what anyone else was doing. And that's because they didn't care. You don't care what someone else is doing unless it matters to you. So you structure organisations where you have proper partnerships, employee ownership, real alignment of interest. You have to put your money alongside the customer and you immediately start getting better ethics and a better culture through a stronger structure. And the final piece I'll say is I think that um, Christianity and capitalism are very in, in tune. I don't believe that capitalism and money is somehow a separate dirty concept. I think the creation of wealth, the advancement of our society, the raising up of humanity in our journey from the swamp to the stars, as Ronald Reagan so wonderfully said, I think that is absolutely compatible with Christianity. The parables of the talents, the concept of investing. Matthew 15, verses 28 to 35, you probably can quote this yourself when asked by the Pharisees, is that right? They were probably the, 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 the hedge fund managers of the day. Um, they, they say to Jesus, um, should we pay tax? Nowadays, Jesus would probably have said, I'm afraid I'm not authorised to give financial advice. <laughs> but if you use an SEIS, you don't have to pay tax. But the, but the, uh, under, the draw from this, I am told by the theoreticians, uh, probably from Durham, is that the concept of having a, a Christian life and a capitalist life are not actually incompatible. They exist upon parallel lines. And my ask tonight is not simply to write off the concept of money and not to take what has happened through our distortion of the capitalist system as the fact that is capitalism presented to us today, but to step back and look at the opportunities we can have if we do genuinely breathe deeply, cherish what capitalism and money can do for us, know that we must have a hinterland of faith and community beyond this, not try and distort and warp the capitalist flow of money, but rejoice in it. And I think if we do that and we live alongside it, then ultimately this problem will be solved. Money neither our master nor we its servant, but our partner for the future. Thank you very much.
I'm half tempted to ask for a vote at the end of this to see who does, who does best, but I shan't. Um, our next speaker is Ben Dyson. He is the co-author of Modernizing Money, Why Our Monetary System is Broken and How It Can Be Fixed. Um, I'm editorializing a bit because I find his a fascinating bio because he studied economics at SOAS for two years and decided it didn't have much to teach him. Um, and he was better self-taught uh, because mainstream economics didn't have much relevance in the real world. There are a lot of students agreeing with him these days. So he started a business with some friends and found himself very successful, I believe, in that business. But was still, is it fair to say, concerned about the fact that you hadn't gotten to the root of the intellectual puzzle you were working with. Yeah. And a courageous soul, he went off, uh, quit his job, did some freelance to keep hand and mouth together, and spent the other half of time trying to figure out this issue about the monetary system by doing a lot of reading and thinking and writing. So in 2010, he formally launched with some others um, a not-for-profit called Positive Money. And this idea has two meanings that money and finance can be a positive force if the system is well designed, and that money can be created as positive money without the mountain of debt that is inherent in the current debt-based system. So I hope you'll understand that even better than we could have planned, this is a wonderful triumvirate of speakers. <laughs> Thank you. Well. Uh, from the, the point when you leave school until the time you retire, you spend about one out of every four hours, including the time that you sleep, doing things in exchange for money. Now, unless, um, I think the, the majority of people don't do that for the sake of having money in the bank account. They have it to get access to the food and the things that keep us alive and, and make life livable. Um, but the, the point is, if you have money, you can get people to do things for you. And put it another way, if you have money, you can control what people do. So it's interesting, first of the question of how do you get that money? Um, let's just assume everybody's honest and nobody lies, cheats, steals, or missells um, in order to get their money. That means you then have to create some kind of value and you know, offer it up to society. Um, you sell something that other people value, you know, a good or a service. Um, and you're adding value to society, and in exchange you're getting money, and then that allows you to go back to society and take some value in exchange. But what if you could create money? That would allow you to take some money from society, so you take some value from society without actually having to create something of value first, or having to earn uh, the money by creating something. So we, we all know that there's something a little bit fishy about this, um, this process of creating money. And that's why if you try and do it yourself at home, you get the police coming through the door 2 a.m. the next morning. Um, and there was a BBC journalist speaking to one of the Bank of England directors. Um, the director was called Paul Fisher. And the journalist was saying, why is it that we're not allowed to create our own money at home? And he said, and this is what he said, when you create money, you create some value for yourself. If you issue a thousand pounds worth of IOUs, you get a thousand pounds for nothing. So the power to create money actually means that you can get value from society without first creating any value or, or adding any value to society. 
So that sort of leads on to three questions, uh, which I think are really critically important. Uh, the first one is, who currently has the power to create money today? You know, where does that power rest? Secondly, how much money do they create, whoever has this power? And then thirdly, how do they use the money they create? So on the first question, you know, who actually has the power to create money? I'm just going to quote the Bank of England. Uh, in a recent paper that they released in March this year, they said that commercial banks create money in the form of bank deposits by making new loans. When a bank makes a loan, for example, to someone taking out a mortgage to buy a house, it does not typically do so by giving them thousands of pounds worth of banknotes. Instead, it credits their bank account with a bank deposit the size of the mortgage. At that moment, new money is created. So whenever you walk into a bank to take out a loan, uh, that money isn't coming from somebody's life savings. It's actually new money that is created through a very simple accounting entry. And this is all legal. Um, and that is the way that 97% of the money that we now use is created. Now, these, um, these deposits are essentially IOUs. So banks are creating money by issuing new IOUs. So on the second question, how much money have they created? Well, it took 300 years for the UK banking system to create the first trillion pounds. And then it took the next eight years to create the second trillion. And then, then we had the financial crisis. Um, when they were creating these trillion pounds worth of new IUs in the years running up to the financial crisis, they were doing it through lending. So at the same time, they were creating a trillion pounds worth of new debt. And when, uh, when Paul Fisher was saying, as I just mentioned, that when you create IOUs, you get some value for yourself. The, the value that the banking sector acquired from itself by issuing these IOUs was a trillion pounds worth of interest-bearing mortgages and debt. You know, personal loans, credit cards, uh, loans to businesses, and mortgages. Okay, the third question, how did they use that money? So of the, in the 10 years running up to the start of the financial crisis, of the money that banks created, the new money that they created, 51% of it went into mortgages, into residential and commercial property. 31% went into financial markets. 8% to businesses outside the financial sector. Um, that's the part that most people think is the majority of what banks do, lending to businesses, but it's actually a minority. And then the remaining 8% went to things like credit cards and uh, you know, uh, personal loans. So when you take those figures into account, it's hardly surprising we have an economy that is skewed towards property lending and financial services, um, and a, a business sector that is you know, uh, starved of credit, essentially. Um, so the power to create money is essentially the power to shape society. And right now, that power rests with the banks. Um, and that has consequences beyond just the high house prices that we have today. It also has um, it's a big driving force between, behind the rise of inequality. Um, so for anybody who's looked at Thomas uh, Piketty's book, um, the 600-page uh, mammoth book on inequality, um, a large part of the inequality that he talks about, this rise in inequality that has happened over the last few decades, has been due to the rise in property prices. And those property prices are largely driven by newly created money and credit created by the banking sector. So if you've got the wealth to jump onto the ladder, or you've got the income to get the mortgages, you benefit from these artificially high house prices, 
If you don't, then you're frozen out and you end up paying off somebody else's mortgage uh, with your salary. Um, so that drives inequality. Um, the current system, by allowing banks to create money, you know, 97% of the money as they make loans, that is um, one of the big driving forces between the big behind the big rise in personal debt. If we only create money when somebody goes into debt, then there has to be debt for every pound in somebody's bank account. And um, that is really essentially why the government's growth strategy is we need to get banks lending again. And it has been that since the crisis. But then if the problem was, if the driving force behind the financial crisis was that banks were lending too much, too quickly to the wrong people, then you have to question how the solution to the crisis is to get banks to lend even more. Um, and we've been warning about this danger for a while. Now actually the um, former chairman of the Financial Services Authority, uh, Lord Turner, has been saying the same thing. And he recently said, um, we got into this mess because of excessive creation of private credit and money. We should be concerned if our only escape route implies building up a future excess. So, you know, too much credit and debt was what caused the crisis, and right now the strategy is to have more credit to keep the economy going. So, if anyone has the power to create money, uh, we need to make sure that their interests are aligned with the interests of society and the economy as a whole. And I think the last uh, the experience of the last few years shows you that the interests of uh, large banks is not aligned with the interests of society or the economy. And that's one of the reasons why I would argue that you should not trust uh, the large banks with the power to create money. So what are the alternatives? Um, should we give the power to create money to politicians? Well, I think the, the problem here is uh, your political short-termism. Now, if you think like the average uh, lifespan in the UK is about 80 years, the average uh, parliamentary term is five years. So the people in charge of the country are really making decisions whilst worrying about the next one sixteenth of your life. Um, with those kind of incentives and that kind of short-termism short and that myopic focus on winning the next election, I don't think that politicians can make the long-term decision, long decisions that are needed um, if you have the power to create money. So we obviously need something else. Some organization or some body that has interests that are aligned with those of society, that can make tough decisions, um, that can think about the long term. Now, the least radical proposal is that you would say to the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, um, instead of setting interest rates, actually take over the responsibility for creating money directly, instead of allowing the banks to do it. Um, you could go more radical and you could say we need some, like a new body that is more democratic, more transparent, more accountable than either the Bank of England or the Monetary Policy Committee. And there needs to be a debate there about really who, who do you want to trust with this power to create money, with something that can shape society in the way it does. Um, but how specifically should we stop banks creating money? Well, there's been a proposal for this that has been, I mean, actually came out of the Great Depression of the 1930s. The, um, it's a proposal that stops banks creating money by preventing them from issuing the uh, demand deposits, the, um, the numbers that appear in your bank account. Um, so that the only kind of real money would be money that is created by the state, by the Bank of England. Um, and then everything else would be investments and, and risk taking. Um, 
This proposal is, initially came from Irving Fisher in the 1930s. Since then, it's been spoken about by people like Milton Friedman, by James Tobin. Um, in one way or another, uh, Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, has spoken about this in the last few years. So has Adair Turner, the former chairman of the Financial Services Authority. Um, an economist at the International Monetary Fund has released an economic model of how this could work and concluded that it would have significant benefits for the economy and actually for economic growth. Um, and then most recently, Martin Wolf, who is the chief economics commentator of the Financial Times, has uh, written a paper, uh, an article, sorry, an article in the Financial Times entitled Strip Banks of Their Power to Create Money. Um, his conclusion was that this proposal would bring huge advantages. It would be possible to increase the money supply without encouraging people to borrow to the hilt. It would end too big to fail in banking. It would also transfer seniorage, the benefits from creating money, to the public. Um, now, I'd need another 30 minutes to explain specifically how you do it, so I'm not going to inflict that on you. Um, if you are interested in the details, the book, Modernizing Money, goes through that. Um, there's also a shorter paper which you can get from the Positive Money website, uh, and that's a free download. But the priority right now is to make sure that we have a, a public discussion about who we actually want to have this power to create money and to decide where that money goes. And um, in case you're thinking, surely all the experts and the policymakers are already aware of this, and as members of the public, we don't need to worry about it. Uh, Positive Money just commissioned a survey, a professional survey of members of parliament to find out what they knew about money. 71% um, of those MPs that responded, of the 100 MPs that responded, said that only the government has the power to create money, including the electronic money in your bank account. Now, the reality is that 97% of money is created by the banking sector when banks make loans. Um, only 12% of those MPs actually understood that banks create money when they lend and they also destroy money when loans are repaid. So, um, you know, a tenth of uh, our policymakers understand how the monetary system works. And with so little understanding of money amongst those key decision makers, it's not surprising that we don't have a monetary system that works in the interest of society and the economy. The last debate in Parliament on the monetary system specifically was about 170 years ago. And we're actually lobbying now to have another one before the end of the year. Um, so the first step in changing this is to get people to understand that we have a choice about how we want money to work, who we want money, who we want to create money, and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, that's the debate that we're trying to provoke, and tonight is part of that. So, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Uh, I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what a moderator should usually do. Usually you want to get people fighting with each other, but I actually think despite the fact that you come from very different starting points and maybe philosophical views, you actually come to fairly relatively similar conclusions about a need for change, um, even though the need for change may stem from different things. So I think what I'd like to do is ask each of you to give us one constructive solution what would get us away from our current position. And I'm going to say our current position because each of you have a slightly different view of what that is. Who would like to start? Little Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, 
One of the things you learn by passing through the education system is that if you're asked a question, the thing to do is to change it to the question you would have liked to be asked. And that instead. That's the political system too. Um, and um, I think what I want to say is that um, our, my question, my main question after listening to all of this is a question uh, to Dominic, which is, if things are that good, why are they that bad? Uh, why is it that we have been brought by this system uh, to the brink of such a level of climate change and such a level of resource depletion of the planet that we are in imminent danger of not being able to bequeath it to our grandchildren? That's, that's what, and that arises directly actually from issues that Ben has touched on because it arises from the fact that capitalism works by treating the planet and its resources as a credit card, only are much better than credit card than the ones you can get from the bank because it has no credit limit and no repayment date. And so that's how we've treated the world and that's how this system treats the world. And what I, what I want to insist, if I may, is that the subject of this evening's conversation is about money. It's not about capitalism. And trying, I mean, Ben, uh, Dominic did exactly what I'm doing, which is that he changed the question. He changed the question to a discussion about whether we think capitalism is a good idea. And of course, if you, if you, re if you make the question that, everybody gets into a terrible mindset of thinking, well, of course, the alternative is Stalin you know, or Mao Zedong. I'm not talking about a society which is based on civil servants going home at night, fixing the prices of 53,000 items to appear in the shops tomorrow. I'm not talking about abandoning the market. I am talking about not allowing money to have a market. Because the creation of a market in money has had all the devastating results that Ben has talked about. Um, the reason why the property prices expand is simply said by Mark Twain. Uh, if, if money increases in quantity, the price of land will go up because, he said, they're not making it anymore. And, um, and actually, if you look at the state of the British housing stock, you will see in front of your very eyes uh, the massive accumulated debt of uncarried out ma maintenance which is the situation that exists because it pays people to look at their dodgy roof and instead of setting aside the right amount of money each year to look after their house to treat it as a capital transaction at the point at which they move house so the next person borrows a bit more to buy it in order to repair the roof. And uh, you borrow a bit more to buy your next house because you've had to accept a lower price for your house. But it's all done by the smoke and mirrors of money created as debt. And, and I think what that has allowed money to do is to become a dominant force in capitalism, which it has no right to be. It is no longer an instrument and has become a dominating force in our lives. And that's, that's really what I, what, what I want to say when I hear 
the attempt to change the question to a discussion <laughs> about capitalism, because that's not what the subject's about. Well, I, I have great sympathy um, uh, with your views on climate change and other global issues. And as a, as a good capitalist, and I'll come on to, to highlight the link between capitalism and money, um, it, it, it isn't appropriate to uh, deplete your resources. You, you need to have systems that drive sustainability. One of the conversations we had before we sat down this evening was, was I have the privilege of, of managing some of um, Peter's pension since he's a re retired bishop in the church pension fund. And if you read his excellent book, he talks about decisions made for their most efficient end. There was a housing project that was sold to the highest bidder rather than to an organization that could have made better social use of it. And my argument that is that that is an exceptionally important thing to have happened. That money, and it is about money, money is where it is the water that flows through the rivers of our life. Money has to go to where it is um, going to generate the greatest possible return and greatest efficient allocation of capital. That has to be at the core of humankind. And everything we, we, we do to distort that produces the sorts of angst and problems that we suffer from today. So those two points you mentioned, climate change, well, my, my view is that the reason why we are having so much problem with global warming is because some of the industrialized nations where we invest simply do not allow capital to flow effectively and protect their industries. This is, again, governments forcing capital to go in the wrong direction by protecting, in many instances, outdated um, capital-intensive industries that pollute our environment. So this is a, an argument, I hope, in my favor. And the second point on property and property prices, it, it isn't the availability necessarily of credit that drives property prices up. In this country, what, what is it that, that, that drives up property prices? It's the fact there aren't enough properties for people to purchase. It's a simple case of supply and demand. If we build more homes, which no one wants to do near them, property prices will stabilize. And yet again, it's an example of our desire to try to smooth out the volatility of capitalism or the flow of money, to give ourselves repeated property price increases, which is what we demand at the ballot box. I guarantee you, any government that makes your house go up in value will be re-elected. That's a fact. So what do all governments try and do? They try and limit effectively the supply of houses and increase the supply of capital. So they distort the process. So my argument is that tonight is about how we've distorted the flow of money. And it's because of our distortions that we have led ourselves to this unhappy place. And if we can learn to live alongside the flow of capital, with its constraints, and bring back structures that improve personal responsibility and ethical behavior in finance, then ultimately we will be a lot better off, rather than using a sledgehammer to crush a nut that has given us so much sucker over so many generations. All right, having failed miserably to ask my first question. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I, I'm going to try and bring Ben in by asking all of you, or those of you who want to comment, whether it matters how much money is in the system or not for what Dominic wants to happen to happen. Do you see what I mean? It, does it matter? Because having done a little Milton Friedman, you know, there's a stock of money, and if you'll bid things up on that stock of money. So does the actual stock of money that exists matter to the functioning of the system? Well, yeah, because um, 
So what Dominic was talking about there with, you know, money has to go to where it can be of the most value, where it can be used by people in the most effective way to, to add the most value to society. That is the, the classic story of capitalism, but there's an assumption there that there is X amount of money and it can only go so far and whoever comes up with the best use of it will get it because you know, the markets will allocate it so. Um, it completely ignores the fact that you have a small co uh, collection of private companies that actually have the capacity to create new money effectively out of nothing um, through some very simple accounting. And once you factor that in, suddenly this whole story of, of capitalism and money going to where it's most used starts to fall down. So on the, the issue of house prices, like the supply of houses in the UK is definitely one of the reasons why houses are so expensive. But in most developed countries, running up to 2007, they had property bubbles. If you look at Spain and Ireland, house prices shot right up. Um, in those countries, they did build a load of houses that nobody actually needed. So once the credit stopped, the prices came right down. In the UK, we've had um, incompetent governments for the last sort of 20 or 30 years who have not been building enough houses themselves um, and have not been allowing private house builders to build enough. Um, and the result of that is the house prices have gone up and stayed up. But in terms of, uh, you know, the credit is absolutely essential to, to driving those, those prices up as well. It's not just the shortage of housing in itself. Um, so yeah, it does, it does matter. It matters how much money there is, um, who's creating that money, and how they decide how to use it. Okay, and, and I have one other, and then I will open up to the audience, because this is a terrible habit of mine of taking over all the questions, which is there has been a move in, in some places, I think Brighton's one or Hove, where they create local money, and I'm, I'm presuming the, peop the police don't come and arrest them at 2 it's in the in, It's in Devon, isn't it? It's there are a couple different places now in the UK where they've done this, and it encourages you to spend locally. And so your <coughs> money can't be used, I mean, it's kind of like if Scotland had won on the referendum, you know, your money can't be used on both sides of the border, but you can only send, spend it in local shops. How do you feel about that as a, a solution for at least containing what's <coughs> used? Um, I mean, those local currencies, there's one in Brixton, there's one in Bristol, uh, in Totnes, um, in Lewis, but they're all quite small in terms of the actual volume of money mm -hmm. that they have. And um, they can do some good things on a local basis, but given the scale of the problem with the national monetary system, they can never hope to, to offset you know, the, the harm and the distortions that are done by that. Mm -hmm. So you have to have uh, reform of your national currency and monetary system as well. Uh, I just wanted to say sure. one quick point, which is the, the, the comment um, Ben was making about uh, the housing booms in the Mediterranean countries. Why, why, were, why, why was that allowed to take place? It was because the European project allocates capital for political reasons rather than for economic reasons, which is why we are so nervous about what will happen to the future of the European project. So, that, that I think goes back to, to my point, to the, to, the, to the belief that distortions have led to these problems. And I think you touch on Scotland. Um, my, my view of the Scottish independence movement was not about trying to break away from rule of English, you know, so, English soldiers um, in Edinburgh Castle subjugating the, the, the impoverished Scot. It was a rejection of Anglo-Saxon capitalism. And if you listen to the language of the referendum, it was, it was if we are free of England, we will be able to ignore the concepts of prudence effectively. 
and have unlimited money for the health service. So how, how they were going to do this, no one really questioned. But that was fascinating for me. That was what the referendum was about. It wasn't about nationalism, and I think half of us in this audience probably come out for Scottish roots like I do. It was about the rejection of the concept of the free flow of money in the free markets. And that, that was fascinating for me. I don't know if that is useful to the debate there. Now, we have, I believe, a microphone, and we do that because it allows not only people to hear, but no, we don't have a microphone. So you're going to have to, sorry, I got that wrong. You're going to have to stand up and project so everybody can hear you and also our mics can hear you. Yes? Yeah, thank you. My name is Moin Yassin from Global Vision. Um, uh, the point I want to make is uh, I, I, I'm looking at money from a moral, political, economic perspective. It's important for the US Pacific, what I'm saying. Um, uh, in general, there were a lot of jokes from the panel, I agree. Also, my views from an Abrahamic uh, perspective, not just Christian, but moral for that matter. Uh, but I must vehemently disagree with the gentleman in the corner, although I'm also an entrepreneur, I'm also trying to set up a bank for entrepreneurship, so there might be something in common. But your view on capitalism, you're from another planet, mate. I can see it in Glasgow or anywhere. I mean, uh, there's been 17 crashes of the system since the rise of it. It's a monster. You haven't even mentioned imperialism and slavery, for God's sake. So get your facts right, because unless you understand, unless you have the right diagnosis, you're, in, you're on the Titanic. We are on the Titanic. Um, so that's my first point. Urgency, where we're at, 17 crashes, and we're in the midst of one of the deepest, and it is linked to a war. Our, my community globally has been targeted, right? Because the system needs war. It creates ends. No one's mentioned that. Understand what you're dealing with, because it will bite you, and it will sink you, all of us. <coughs> now, coming to something practical, uh, points about nature and governance was mentioned. Two, two suggestions from our think tank. And one of them is actually, I think we are hitting the right people, invisibly. This, ladies and gentlemen, is in the evening standard by the owner. And you know what he's saying? I was shocked, because I, you know, I know what I do to the evening standard, uh, a lot of the articles, uh, or what I do to the paper. He's saying, the owner, we must create a global force to fight corruption. And, and guess what he says, the diagnosis? Half of the world's wealth is laundered. Economic crime, that's not me saying it. And he's, listen, to the final point, a lot of comes from London. Not very pleasant, but right about here. So anyway, and the Bank of America recently like had 20,000 million, not an economic conspiracy, 20,000 million fund. And where's the accountability? So that's my point. We need democracy in finance. And we need to eliminate, eliminate the bankers' government. That word wasn't used. It is a government. If you want to have a discussion, it's not. And it's on the internet. Hundreds of millions know that now. Not just the word uh, idiot. So there is a bankers' government, and it's unaccountable, and it's got to be eliminated not just accountable, uh, and we need a clean house. I'll end there, and I like that those points to be raised. The criminalization of the banking system, the, there's criminality that's going to unpunish. 
all those people need to be identified, and in case of the media, and we know who they are, uh, they need to be made accountable, and also we need to clean the system, uh, and the democracy, the democratic control. Thank you. I mean, I think Dominic made quite an important point about crony capitalism. So I think some of that is, you know, government by the banks and crony capitalism are not. They're, they're, going, they're, they're frightened. You've got rid of two guys. There was a there was a question over here. Yes, there. Um, yes, uh, actually, that's Tom. Um, I'm the manager of the Brixton Town, which is. Ah, oh, I apologize for getting the, the location wrong. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's a few that are in, in the UK. Uh, there's, there's lots of nascent projects as well, but they do require lots of um, groundwork to get them to get them going. So uh, I think over the next few years, you probably will see a lot of, not just the local money, but as you've seen, sort of cryptocurrencies and um, other business-to-business -business style ones. Um, there's, there's so many examples of currency innovation that have existed for quite a long time, and I think they're going to actually um, increase over the, over the next few years as people look for um, alternative solutions. Um, just to go to one of the points that hasn't really been um, raised is this idea of um, actually it's the way money that's created um, as interest-bearing debt and no one actually mentioned the word um, growth. And it's actually, that is, 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 is the problem, is that um, money created as interest-bearing debt means that there is more debt in the world than there is money to pay it back. So actually the point that um, Reverend Selby made at first about how money is increasingly entering uh, domains of our lives, it, it's because it has to because it, we have to find ways of turning resources into new commodities in order to pay back the, the, the interest on the money that's actually been lent back out to us. So the result of that is obviously the environmental crisis that we are, um, that we are facing, which is this constant battle to find new ways to monetize every aspect of, of the planet and our lives. So, um, Local money is not the, not the answer, as Ben said. It's not the, it's not the answer to you know, how we can actually um, reform, reform the money system. But I think what it actually does do is sort of present the idea of alternative, um, alternative, practical alternative ways of using money. Can I, thank you very much. Can I try and turn that into a question? Because if, if we're chasing, if we're on this sort of hamster wheel where we're running to repay our debt. I had always thought, frankly, it was kind of the other way around, that we needed growth and they needed us to consume, which is why they were lending us all this money, because consumption is the engine of economic growth and economic growth seemed to keep people happy. I mean, Ben, how do you, how do you see that in this sort of chicken and egg? Is it the, is it, are we running to repay the debt or are they giving us the debt so we'll buy more stuff? It's, it's a tricky one. Um... So academics are still inconclusive on whether the current monetary system is, is, requires economic growth, this continual economic growth that we currently have. Um, it's interesting that if the cabinet office releases a study that shows that there's basically a chart of economic growth that goes like this, 
and uh, life satisfaction, which goes like that. And that's over about 60 or 70 years. Like all of this economic growth since the war hasn't actually resulted in people being any more satisfied with their lives. Um, so you have to question, what, what, why is that? Why are we continually driving for that? But there is the fact that um, in a recession, it's very hard for these businesses and actually for individuals who've taken on all this debt to keep servicing that debt, which means it can either slow down the economy or bring the banking system down again. Um, so I could say, like, you know, at quite a simple level, you can see that we have to keep growing the economy to keep this debt serviceable. Well, they have proved that people get unhappier when growth goes down. It doesn't increase satisfaction by going up, but they do get unhappier when it drops. Well, people get <laughs> people get unhappy when they when they're made unemployed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, but. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's quite clear that part of the driving force is that a lot of these debts cannot be serviced at a time when the economy is not growing. Um, but the way you get your economy to grow is by getting people to go further into debt. And there's a, a natural limit to how far you can take that. I like debt. You like debt? Debt, debt, debt means I live in my own home. Debt, debt means I can start my business. Debt allows me to efficiently pool savers' money and turn it into something that will improve our lives. And whilst money doesn't buy happiness, you, you can buy a, a bed but not sleep, and, and, and medicine but not health, and books but not brains, and all these things are true, and I'm not pretending for a minute that you can. If we don't run our capitalist system properly, and we distort it, and, and your issues come from the distortions, that's my point, and the lack of culture and ethics that go with personal responsibility and appropriate structures in capitalism, um, then, 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 then we will be in a substantially worse place, either unfree, effectively a slave, because our money and our property are, are not free, or, or limited entirely in our ability to extend our lives and live better. So I don't agree with this view on debt. There's a comment. Whoops, go ahead. Could I respond quickly? Um, yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that sort of thing of, yes, debt allows me to buy a house. I mean, that, that's good debt if, oh. if it allows you to take out a mortgage to buy a house. But it's, it's good if it means you end up paying 30% of your income for that house. But then if house prices are artificially inflated through all of this credit so that you end up paying 50% of your income for that house, that's actually reducing your disposable income. The house isn't any bigger. Um, it's just more expensive, and it actually reduces your disposable income and what you can spend and, and what you can buy. Um, so it's, yeah, debt can be useful, but in a system when it, the whole system is driven by debt, it becomes, um, becomes more extractive than, than adding value. Have, having once been a bank lending officer, I think you're ad asking for proportionate and appropriately allocated debt. Yes, yes. <laughs> there was a comment. Um, well, one of the problems is, is, is that that we lose the concept of enough. Um, I, I mean, I, I have grandchildren, and it's very important that they should grow. It's very important that I shouldn't. <laughs> uh, and, and, and there's a simple point there, which is that um, it's very important that impoverished African countries should have sufficient additional resources to make it possible for people to eat and to be medically cared for and to educate their children. And that requires more resources. But that doesn't mean that, that growing forever 
is actually the right solution for the human condition. Because that can only be done by, um, by what, uh, what I think is the fundamental distortion, which is that things which have no price, which we did not make, like land, like the minerals that are under the surface of the land, uh, get, get exploited to the point that next generations will not have them. Thank you, Peter. I will let you speak. I really will. <laughs> Go ahead. First of all, I'd like to thank the panel for their fantastic analysis of money. Um, I actually concur with Dominic, not because I know him, but because I am a although for quite some time. Um, I think people are very quick to look at negative aspects of you know, finance and money, but nobody here is talking about the positive things that, that have come from money. You know, the crashes which haven't happened. You know, people predicting the Euro's going to crash and various other elements, but positive things have happened from money. Um, but to cut to the chase, uh, I would like to point out what Dominic mentioned, which was in regards to volatility. Now, like any system, you all have chaos within you. So, when it comes to volatility, for example, in trading terms, you put risk management facilities in place. So, with respect to risk management, we're looking at regulation. Now, as we know, the issues which have stemmed from subprime issues. There's now very strenuous improvements which are coming from the banks. So people here are not saying, okay, we've seen change in the last few years, but they're very quick to blame bankers, blame councillors, when, well, if you're in a room full of sharks, you're not going to jump in unless you can handle the heat. So people that have gone in for those investments or those mortgages, they should have understood the risks in the first place. Similar to gambling. No one's forcing people to do these things. <clears throat> you can't afford to do something you don't go in. So, anyway, um, I'm looking at things from a positive point of view. And I think it's a bit unfair to blame bankers or to blame you know, governments. You need those things in place. So, anyway. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll make sure you get yeah, looked after later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, um, uh, I mean, hang on. Um, nobody in nobody uh, here is blaming bankers as though this was a, some kind of moral failing. I mean, there were blameworthy bankers, certainly, but no, that's not the issue. The issue that is being pointed up is a systemic one about the way in which money is created and the result of that. It's not surprising that, I mean, the, the word flow has been used quite a lot and, and we speak of liquid assets. Um, we, it's not surprising that if you want to uh, have a system that is, that is funded by the creation of new debt by banks, that there will be some bankers who go off the rails. But that's not where the blame rests. Uh, what has to happen is the disciplining of this deity called money so that it ceases to be arbiter in human affairs. Thank you, Michelle. I'm not so much blaming you any patterns, but I've heard some people <laughs> which are very, you have all the time, you know, blame people, but... As you say, you know, we need to get back to the... Uh, mm, of course. Well, one, one of the reasons we do these things is because we like the diversity of views we get. And, I, and sometimes we often 
preach to the converted and talk to people, only people who believe what we believe. And I think it's extraordinarily important to get a diversity. And there's someone in the back of the room who would, who would like to say something. Thank you, <coughs> Raj Mosram. Uh, the diversity of the panel is great. Um, um, my point I'd like to uh, talk about or uh, get us to focus on is the way that money is now controlling politics, much more so than it ever did. Um, and I think it's clearest in, in countries like, um, well, in the Western world, it's clearest in the States, where there's a high correlation between the kind of political gridlock and the, the income disparities. But if you look at all the really problems, all the problems where which should be amenable to pragmatic pro-capitalist reform, be they changes in subsidies to uh, uh, dirty energy versus green energy, or better auditing practices, or just all these very practical things would be obvious. They're completely stopped by very powerful vested interests. And so I guess my question is, how are we going to deal with the fact that money is actually the political master of our process now? I'm happy to make a comment on that. Sure. And uh, I think I've campaigned to um, try to clean up how donations are made in British politics. And I think you make a very, very important point, particularly about some of the political systems, such as the US, um, where the political system has become distorted. Mm -hmm. now, that's nothing to do with the appropriate, with the sort of flow of money concepts that we're talking about on this panel. I mean, ultimately, that, that, is, that is corrupt. And this goes back to my constant complaint about the producer cartels that have been allowed to appear, be they oil and gas or financial services or whatever it is, who, because they're so singularly dominant, that we are, as consumers, so fractious, are able to force the political debate. And this can range from direct campaign contributions in the States to uh, other ways to pressure and, and lobby. So it, it is not just a simple relationship of that. It, it is a concept in itself. And great politicians um, are uh, advocates of competition and creative destruction. Um, so they're the ones who I think we need to be making sure that we support. Good. I think we have time for one more question, and there were a couple other hands up. I'll take two, because there's a gentleman in the back that I'm pointing at, and I'm sorry if any of you were terribly upset by my pointing. I don't know how else to, to show it is, and then this gentleman here, and then I will offer you all a drink. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, sir. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, question, um, on the assumption, which I agree about the need to control money, could you give a some specific examples, perhaps, of how you feel money could be controlled. And, and if that is, the solution is largely in the political realm, my question would be, is there a role for churches as, as part of that task? Do you want to take the other question first? OK, um, yes, let's do that. And so, Mark, come back to something which we said as well, relating to that psalm.
is that issue of protecting the vulnerable, which I, I'll take later as a reminder. But I think that concept of just letting things go free is strong. Will in the end take something away from our communities that's Peter. Well, let, let me just comment on, and I'll take an example that's in the book, um, uh, which is uh, one that's seared into my memory because I was personally involved. Um, <clears throat> one of the ways in which money has extended its reach into areas of our life for which it should not be arbiter is the requirement on charities, and that includes churches of course, uh, to maximise their returns. What that does is to allow money, because it's got numbers on it, to be determinative of values. Um, so the, the particular example uh, Dominic mentioned was the sale of the Octavia Hill Estates, which was done in order to support the mission of the church by getting the most money you could. The fact was that that numerous people who were involved in that circumstance, in that situation, knew that what that did was damage the mission of the church substantially. It destroyed congregations. It made it impossible for generations of people, future generations of people, to, to live in the inner city. So that therefore what happens is a distortion, not just of the housing market, but of demography. Now, my point is that what has to be done is to stipulate boundaries to the rule of money. And rather than using money as the boundary around other human activities. Because what is happening is that because money has numbers written on it, it has acquired the capacity to make decisions for us. It looks as though the answer is clear once you know the numbers. And my point is what that does is drive out the qualitative estimate of a whole range of human activities. So that's my, that's my um, uh, overarching aim would be to, to interfere in precisely the ways Dominic wouldn't like, to interfere as much as possible in the growing capacity of money, created as it currently is, to dominate decision-making of an ethical and aesthetic sort. <laughs> and I'm going to use that as a note to close on, so that if any of you would like to relieve yourselves of the false idols in your pocket, um, there will be books available for sale at the front of the room, um, after we close here. For those of you who want to do that, you can do that and then join us for a drink outside to which you are all cordially invited. But first of all, I would ask you to join me in thanking the panelists before you go through.